come to the scripture now, let me ask you please um, to pray with me. Uh, Our Father in heaven, you uh, say to us that your word is a light and a lamp to us. To uh, show us the way, to guide the way, to reveal to us that which is true. Lord, we confess that without your word working by your spirit, then we won't know the way. We won't know Christ. We need you to reveal him to us. And so we pray now that your word would have its intention for us, that is, we trust to bring grace and ultimately joy to us. So please now, as we hear these words read, I pray they resonate within us. This is indeed the very word of God, that we hear your voice and we trust deeply, sincerely, wholly in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Turn to Ephesians in chapter 1, please. Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read verses 3 through 14. Ephesians in chapter 1, please. This, of course, is the word of God. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want, if God will help me, just to take up really the very end of verse 8 and then verses 9 and 10, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, this is part of a whole long sentence, as we've said, verses 3 through 14, um, wherein Paul is praising God and leading all believers, really, in the praise of God as well. And, and he's praising God essentially for his salvation, and they are praising God for their salvation. We're praising God in this passage for our salvation. And the reason the praise goes to God is because it's the work of God. Paul realizes realizes that. 
His salvation, our salvation, is from God's will. It's through His grace. So it's God's will, not ours, that He saves us. He initiates, He does it, you see, that we might be saved. It's His will for us, those He's chosen before the foundations of the earth. So it's His will, it's His grace. We haven't merited it, it comes from Him. And it's motivated by His love, even for the likes of us. And so Paul looks at his own life, we look at our lives, they looked at their lives, and they realize, yes, of course, this is true. This salvation leaves me boasting, not in myself at all, but only in God, because I realize, as a sinner, I'm without hope. We're without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy, the mercy that he gives to us in Christ So when Paul said he's been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, he means that we believers uh, have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to receive the benefits that come through Christ. The benefits of being declared holy and blameless in his sight. The benefits of being adopted as sons. The benefit of being redeemed and forgiven sins. All of that, you see. And so Paul says, well... Praise be to God. I mean, I can't, I can't take any credit for this. I must worship him. And he realizes without this, I'm utterly lost for all eternity. And so, so thus, um, the, the praise, uh, praise be to God as he puts it. But uh, this morning, I want to take up as, as he's progressed through this, he comes to a place where um, many um, scholars, commentators, uh, preachers, as they come to this particular section, these verses 9 and 10 particularly, see, this is the high point, really, of Paul's doxology here. This is where it's, it's sort of all headed. And you might say, well, why would they say that, that this is the high point? I mean, we, 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 the, what we've talked about so far seems like very significant and very important, and thus it is. But, but this is getting at the purpose of all of this. Yes, Christ has come to save us. And of course, we give him praise for that. But there's still something else about Christ that we must realize. He is our Savior, that is true. But he's the Lord of all things. And so a day will come when we'll see that all things in heaven and on earth have been united in Christ. That's the point here, isn't it? He says that in verse 9, that he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here's what's going to happen when time is full, when time is ripe and ready to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's everything, by the way, right? <laughs> in Christ. And so you see, Jesus Christ, the Lord, becomes, is the focal point of everything, the focal point of all creation, the focal point of all history in that sense, you see, at this point. So that's why uh, many refer to this as the high points of this doxology. He's taking us all the way there. So it's important for us uh, to really see it. And so this is something that we must keep in mind all the time. Uh, various ways I note my sermons or sermons that I preach. Uh, and this I would put into the category of big picture. This is, we, we need to stop every once in a while and see it. 
We need to stop every once in a while and go, oh, yes, of course. Because you know as well as I do that we get so wrapped up in the moment, so wrapped up in the minutia of eternity <laughs> that we miss eternity, that we forget where all of this is heading and what it will be like for most of our existence, almost all of our existence in the context of eternity. So we need to realize where we're going. We need to see today as it relates to the end, you see. And, and that's what we, what we have here. I, I, I like this expression, at least for me. I use it in my own mind very often as I think. And I, I say to myself, but a day will come when? But a day will come when? Because when I'm caught up in the, the difficulties of the moment, whether it's financial or whether it's physical or whether it's relational, or whether it's emotional, or even whether it's spiritual. And I get discouraged. I remind myself that a day will come when <laughs> all this will be in the past. And while I'm still in the midst of it, because it isn't past at that moment in time, it gives me perspective. It lets me see, no, no, there's something beyond this. And this is what the apostle is getting at now. This is what, what, what really moves him to praise. Yes, yes, before the foundations of the world, we get it. God has a plan for our salvation. And that's great. So we praise him. And, and we see the present effects of that as we're adopted in Christ because he's come to redeem and our sins are forgiven. But, but then he goes on to say, now, a day will come when all things will be united in Christ. And he says that God has made this known to us, and what he's made known to us is the mystery of his will. So he asked the question, what does Paul mean by, by mystery? You know, in, in the days of Paul, there were mystery religions, still are in the days in which we live. And these are religions in which you're initiated into by some sort of secret ritual. And nobody really knows why, what this ritual means, or what really is taking place. All you know is at the end, you're in. You don't really get it. You don't really understand it. But here you are in this. It isn't that. That's not when Paul says the mystery of his will. He's making it known to us. And even in our own use of that word, sometimes we refer to a mystery of that is, which is puzzling, which is incomprehensible, which we'll never know. And he said, that's not Paul's point here either, because he's making it known to us. And it isn't even a mystery in the sense that we might use it in the context of reading a mystery novel or watching a film or a movie that's, that, that it's called a mystery, you see. Where, where clues are, are placed throughout the storyline. And if we're astute enough, we're paying enough attention, if we're thinking it through rightly, we'll pick up on those clues so that when it gets to the end and the, the mystery is solved, and uh, we'll go, oh yeah, I, I see how that, how that took place. Uh, recently, Karen and I, at least I, uh, combined both the reading and the film together when we went to see Murder on the Orient Express. Because it had been so long since I read the book, I couldn't remember how the book put it, so I had to go back and reread parts of the book just to make sure the movie was uh, reflecting it accurately. But I was surprised uh, by the ending uh, of both the book and the movie, because uh, I didn't really see it coming. But, uh, the, um, but it isn't that. It isn't that there are clues throughout history that we're supposed to pick up on, and if we're paying attention enough, we'll, we'll see it. Because this is... 
When Paul uses the expression mystery, he means that there's something that's hidden, something we don't know, can't even discern, that has to be revealed by God. It can only be known through God's revelation. We could never have come to it on our own. We would never have thought it through on our own. We'd never have seen it other than by way of God's revelation. That's why Paul says that he is making this known. A couple of of definitions. Uh, John Stott, who's a commentator of note um, on Ephesians and other books of the Bible, puts it like this. He said, a mystery in the New Testament is a truth hitherto hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now disclosed by the revelation of God. Another one, Peter O'Brien puts it like this. He says, a mystery is a revelation of what was previously hidden, but now disclosed by God. It can't be understood through human wisdom, but comes to be known as God reveals it by his spirit to those he loves. Perhaps best is to go to Paul himself in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. He writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That's what it is. He said there was a mystery. It was hidden. You couldn't get it. You couldn't understand. You couldn't see it. But now it's revealed to his saints. Verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is everything is united in Christ. He's the focal point of everything. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. In other words, the way that this mystery is revealed is first and foremost, it's revealed in and through Christ. Well, how do we know about him? Well, it comes by way of word and spirit. So Paul would write in Romans and chapter 16, uh, verses 25 and 26, this. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. You see, that, that's it. It comes through the word of God. This mystery is now revealed in Christ, through Christ, by his life and death, resurrection, all that he did. To know that, how do we know that? By his his word. In fact, in Ephesians, in chapter 6, in verse 19, Paul says something similar, except that he's, he's asking for prayer. So verse 19, he says, And pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim The mystery of the gospel. So when Paul says we want to make known or proclaim the mystery, he's saying, just that. I want to make it known to you so you can hear it and understand it and know that this is really true. So it comes by way of the word, but also by the working of the Holy Spirit in and through this God-breathed word in 1 Corinthians and um, chapter 2 and verse 7. 
uh, we find this. Paul says, well, verse 6. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for they had, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God prepared for those who love him. And see, that's the mystery. He said, now you see it. You see, you see it in Christ. Now we finally see, and we're revealing this, it was hidden before, but now revealed. You can really see this, that God has prepared something great for those who love him. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so it's by way of the work of the Holy Spirit that his word is made alive in us. And we can see it and know it and under and understand it, you see. In fact, when, when Paul uses this word, he uses it often. It's rather his. There, uh, the word mystery in the New Testament is used 27 times. Paul uses it 21 of those 27 times. So it's really on his mind, making known this mystery. That's how he sees it. We, we see it in verse 10 as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. That's this mystery he's making known. And then in chapter 3 in Ephesians, he speaks uh, of the mystery of Christ as well. And this mystery is, is the, the, the bringing in of Gentiles into the church, into the ways of God, into salvation. It isn't just an Israelite thing, but it's for people of the whole world, the whole earth. And so in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul already told them about how he had come to know this. When you read this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and by prophets, by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, already we see that Christ is uniting. He's uniting Jews and Gentiles together. So then, in verse 8, to me, he says, though on the very least of the saints, this grace was given to priests, to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So everywhere, on earth and in heaven, through the church, this mystery of Christ is made known. And then in chapter 5, the end of chapter 5, Paul goes through this whole discussion of, of husbands and wives and how they're there to relate to one another and be joined together. And at the very end of all that, Paul surprises us in verse 32 by saying, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In other words, there's something then about the relationship between husbands and wives and the relationship between Christ and the church, that as husbands and wives are joined together, 
so is the church in Christ. This mystery, you see, to be united with him. And then, as I mentioned a few minutes ago in chapter 6 and verse 19, he uses this expression again, and he says uh, that... uh, and also for me, pray for me that my words, that words may be given me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This mystery that Christ is uh, our hope of glory. This mystery. So what's he making known to us? Well, he's making known to us that there is a plan, God's plan, and in the fullness, for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Jesus, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Um, now, this little expression, um, plan, is somewhat difficult to translate, I've been told, by people who do this for a living. Uh, it's, it's a difficult word to, to translate. The ESV has plan. The NIV sort of... Um, Skips over it in a paraphrase. And, but probably the best, most literal translation of this is in the New American Standard Bible. So if you have one of those. And it speaks of an administration. Or really, uh, if you were going to translate this literally, it would be translated a household management. <laughs> Which isn't very exciting, I suppose. But this sense that, that God is managing everything. This is his household, if you will. Everything in all creation. And God is managing it. And he's managing it in such a way. He has a plan, you see. In such, and he's managing it in such a way that in the fullness of, for the fullness of time. Now, do you, does that little expression, if you've been around the church for a while, does that little expression ring a bell with you? Have you ever, do you remember any other time that expression was used? The fullness of time, when the time is ripe, when the time is ready? Well, flip back a page. You've got your Bible open. Uh, flip back a page to Galatians in chapter 4. Verse 1. Paul's writing as well. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under the guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so then you're no longer a slave but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. That little, just what I read, was very similar to what we have here in the opening verses of, of this letter to the church in Ephesus. But but that whole idea of the fullness of time, in other words, time was moving on and time had a purpose and time moved on to will it was full, to it was ripe, to it was ready. And then what happened? Jesus came. Well, well, now he's saying a similar thing. He says, he says, no, time is moving on as well. And there will come a moment when time is full, when the time is ready. And when that time comes, you'll see something. And you'll see the culmination of all the work of Christ. And that culmination of all the work of Christ is that everything in heaven and on earth will be united, or you could say summed up or gathered up in him. This sense of everything being united in Christ. He becoming the focal point uh, of all things. And the point here is that, that God 
is arranging all of this. God is managing all this. Just, just as when he promised that Christ was coming, he, Christ would come and he arranged all that for his first coming and he came. He's saying similar now. Things are still moving on. I'm still arranging. I'm still managing. I'm still ordaining all things that come to pass. And there's a purpose for which I've appointed all things. And the purpose for which I've appointed all things is so that time can get ready. So that the right moment will come when the fullness of time, when everything is ripe, then, and not till then, will you see everything united uh, in and under Christ. See, we take great comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over all things. We take great comfort in the expression that God ordains all things that come to pass. And the reason that we do is because when trouble comes and difficulty comes into our lives, we know that God has a purpose for it. We take great comfort in that one little expression in the scripture that we use and should use often, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and of the called according to his purpose. Now, how could could that be true? That can only be true if God is sovereign over all things. Because if he isn't, then perhaps they won't work together for good. But God, because he's God, is able to make all things work together for good for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. I can't do that. I very often make things worse. Or at least so it seems to me. When I get involved and it takes a great comfort in the fact that God is able to take all of this, even by making it worse. That he is sovereign over these things so that good will come. And the good that will come, he explains in verse 29 of Romans 8, is that I, we, those who love him and are called according to his purpose, will be conformed to the image of Jesus. You see, that's the ultimate good that will come from all things. And God is able to make that happen. I can't make it happen. You can't make it happen. But God can make it happen. That's, that's our comfort. And we also take great comfort. Here, Paul wants us to take great comfort. He wants us to know this. This is what's phenomenal. God doesn't have to tell us this. He can just sort of surprise us at the end. But he wants us to know this so that it can inform the lives we're living now. So in all wisdom and insight, with love and great grace to us, he makes this known to us because this is good for us to know. And he's saying this is all going in a particular direction. And it's a direction that's good. You'll see it in the end that all things will be united together in Christ. Look forward to that. Live your life today based on that fact. And, and the reason that Paul can say it is because he knows that God is sovereign over all things. And so... He is managing this. He's administrating this. He's, he's planned all this out. He's ruling over all this. This is really going to happen. Happened once before in the fullness of time that Christ came. Well, now when time's full again, he's going to return. And he's going to finish, if you will, bring to fruition, to culminate everything that he won, if you will, by his death and resurrection. He says, now you need to know that. You need to live With that always, always in mind. And it will happen. But why does it need to? 
Why does it need to? It needs to. All things need to be united in Christ because there's disharmony in the things in heaven and the things on earth. You might remember, I mean, again, big picture, creation. God created all things. And in particular, he created uh, Adam and Eve, our first parents. And in so creating them, he gave them work to do. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to multiply just the garden, but the whole earth eventually. And they were to have dominion over all things. They were to rule under God the earth. They were to develop, if you will, civilization, culture, cities. But something happened. Rather than living according to God's way, living under him in submission to him, following him, they went their own way, really the way of the evil one. And then disharmony was created. Disharmony was created in this, the heavenly places, in the spiritual realm, and, and on earth, in the physical realm as well, everywhere. There was, there was disharmony between human beings and God. Now they fell under his condemnation. Now Adam and Eve couldn't eat of the tree of life, which was to be their reward for obedience. They couldn't eat from the tree of life. They were cast out, out of the presence of God, if you will. And we know what happened in the midst. Of, of, of human existence, that we see murders happening pretty quickly. We see animosity among people uh, because people are living self-centeredly, uh, self-dependently, not centered upon God and his ways, and, and, and not dependent upon him for all things. And so we see the disharmony among people that that caused. We see the disharmony uh, between human beings and God. We see even disharmony on, on the earth, in creation. That the joys of human existence now would be only achieved by way of pain. The childbirth would find pain in childbirth. And work would be toilsome. That the earth would fight back and wouldn't give up its produce easily, you see. And all of that would simply be metaphors, if you will, real, but, but simply tell us what life would be like. It would be filled with pain. It would be filled with toil, and we know, filled with grief and death. And so we realize that there was this disharmony between heaven and earth. And so how would that ever come back together? Well, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And he sent his son to redeem, you see, a people for himself. Oh, prior to that, oh, we, we see that, 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 that God had made a promise. He made a promise in Genesis chapter 3 that from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised. And we see it kind of play out. It got really bad for a while, where the scripture tells us that the thoughts and inclinations of human beings were evil continuously. And then God judged the world and the flood, and he saved Noah and his family. But it wasn't too long after that that human beings went their own way, building a tower for their own glory, and God had to separate everyone out, you see, by languages, and there was disharmony there spread upon the earth again. 
And then eventually God called a man, Abraham, became Abraham, and he made promises to him. And he said that your descendants will be many, you'll be fruitful and multiply. And he said, but from your seed, one will come who will bless all the families of the earth. And, and we see how this family of, of, of Abraham, these Israelites, came to be. And at Mount Sinai, finally, after having left uh, been delivered from slavery in Egypt that, that now they find themselves at this mountain and they're, they're made a nation. They're given a constitution. They're given a way that they can live in the presence of God. And so eventually they enter into a land that God has given to them and, and He's present among them. There's, there's distance, but He's still present among them by way of tabernacle and temple and by way of priest and sacrifice. Uh, they're able to live in the presence of God. And he brings to them kings to rule over them and prophets to reveal uh, uh, the truth of God's covenant with them. And, 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 and yet, save a remnant, sin continues to have its way. And harm, disharmony is the rule of the day. And then Christ comes. And we can see from his coming how the uniting is is taking place. For instance, in, in Ephesians in chapter 1, in verse 20, uh, we read this, uh, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things, things in heaven and on earth, all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is a, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what we see now is that the resurrected Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things to finally bring everything to when he returns. And so then we can see all things united, you see, uh, in him. Well, we can see this work of God uh, in the church in chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 14 or so. We'll, we'll see that because of the work of Christ, he's broken down barriers between people so that when we come to faith, we come with one Father and we're united together. We see in chapter 3 the mystery being revealed that, yes, that's, that's the way God has always meant it to be, that Christ has redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and we're joined together. In chapter 4, he'll talk about the fact that we're to maintain this unity that the Spirit has given to us. We're to, to work to maintain it, and we do that by speaking the truth in love and by utilizing the gifts and seeing them play out in the church. In fact, this will... This unity among people will also be a unity between people and God, just as a bride and her groom are united. The church and Christ are united together. And he even then speaks to us about how we'll be able to stand even before the rulers and principalities of the air and how this word will go forth by the preaching and the declaration of the gospel. So, so we see it happening even now. And we're to live that out. But he says, don't ever forget that a day will come when. You see, when we think about life without God, we end up um, in exactly the same place that the preacher, Ecclesiastes, found himself. 
He considered everything without God. And he said, this is meaningless. Life is vanity. It, it, it simply, uh, there's nothing really of value here at all. And he said, so I pursued pleasure, but I got bored. And I realized that even at the end of pleasure was death. So what's the use of it? So I, I, I got wealth and I got as much wealth as you possibly can have. And I had every possession you can possibly have. And at the end of the day, I realized that rich people die and poor people die. So what's the use of it? So then I, I sought education and I, I thought wis- sought, sought wisdom and, and I became wiser than anyone else. And, and, and then at the end of the day, I realized that, that, that wise people die and uh, unwise people die. So what's the use of it? And we realize, oh, there's use when we realize that history is moving to a culmination, that it's ripening all the time. And that Christ has come, and we see glimpses of it. And now he says, oh, just, 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 it isn't meaningless at all. And it's not meaningless because God has a purpose for it. We will mess it up all the time. But God has a purpose for it. So he's, he has the management of the household. He has the rule over all things. He has the plan, and he's moving it all in this direction. And a day will come when we'll see it. I mean, life, let's face it, in the minutia of it can get very disappointing and very discouraging, whether it's battles with health, or whether it's relationship issues, or whether it's simply the fears and anxieties that come upon us at various points in our lives. I mean, it just you just begin to wonder, is this going to suck me down and destroy me, really? And we look at, our, we look at life and, and we see, just in the world in which we live, it, is it really getting any better? Oh, oh there's some things better. I mean, we, we enjoy, some of us anyway, in the, in the world. Not everyone, of course. In fact, not even most. But we, as Americans, living in Lawrence, Kansas in these days, enjoy all kinds of wonderful things. Of What would be luxuries or even unheard of in previous generations. So in that sense, yes, they, I suppose things better. Healthcare, better. More food, better. Some distractions from life and recreation and entertainment. Better, I suppose. Transportation, better. Communication, better. But yet in the midst of that, are we communicating any better? Right? Are we living any better, really? In terms of our own lives and our own character. Just yesterday, we heard tell of bands of what appeared to be white supremacists and Confederate flags and all of that going down Massachusetts Street. And you just want to say, really? (sighs) And even though there have been improvements in various pockets, still, we know that racism has always been, and sadly, we think will always be alive. But a day will come when. And we hear about all the sexual scandals and the abuse, those in power over those who are weak. And we pray for those victims and we're even encouraged by the fact that it's being exposed. We pray 
that it will stop, but we know. No matter what progress might be made in one spot or another spot or one time or another time, we know that there's always been sexual abuse and exploitation by the powerful over the weak. It's always been the case. And though we strive to change that, we need to bear in mind that a day will come when. And you know, when that day comes, you see, human beings will be glorified, will be conformed to the image of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth will be reunited. I mean, that's the, the wonderful expression that we have in the end of Revelation in chapter uh, 21, verse 1. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. You see, it's, we're reunited. There's no longer separation. Heaven and earth, the new heavens, the new earth, it's, it's, it's the way it's, It's always meant to be, if you will. He'll dwell with them. They'll be his people. God himself will be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. We need to know that. We need to have that in our minds. A day will come when. John Stott. We'll go to the table with this. John Stott um, in his book on Ephesians puts it like this, he said. At this point, it may be wise to pause a moment and consider how much all of us need to develop Paul's broad perspective. Let me remind you that he was a prisoner in Rome, not indeed in a cell or a dungeon, but still under house arrest and handcuffed to a Roman soldier. Yet, though his wrist was chained and his body was confined, his heart and mind inhabited eternity. He peered back before the foundation of the world and on to the fullness of time and grasped hold of what we have now and ought to be now in the light of those two eternities. As for us, how blinkered is our vision? He's British. He means we can't see narrow-minded As for us, how blinkered is our vision in comparison with his. How small is our mind. How narrow are our horizons. Easily and naturally we slip into preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in light of eternity. And our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and future perfection. Then if we share the apostle's perspective, we would also share his praise. For doctrine leads to doxology as well as duty. Life becomes worship. And we would bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly. What's he saying? He's saying, be at peace. Be at peace. That isn't to make light of the moment. That isn't to make light of the pain. That isn't to make light of the difficulty. That isn't to make light of the present anxiety. That isn't make light of the present fear. That isn't to make light of the present sadness. But he says, now take all of that and throw it in the big bucket. Throw it in the big ocean. Throw it into eternity, you see. And so you're experiencing this now, but be, be at peace. 
For a day will come when, when you'll see it. And all things will be united in Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread, And drink of this cup. We declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare? Well, at least this. That the day will come when. All things in heaven and on earth. Will be united in Christ. And we know that. And we live by that. And the question is. Can you see it? Do you know it? And you see past the moment there. This enables us to see past the moment. Christ has come. Christ has ascended. Christ has saved us. He's ruling and reigning over all things for the sake of his Father's glory and the sake of the church. So that all things will work in such a way that a day will come when all things will be united in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray for us that we'd see it. That we'd see eternity past. That before you created, you knew what you were going to do. You were going to glorify yourself by having for yourself a people that would bring you glory and would reflect you. And thus, you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. And in love you predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. The redemption of our own lives and bodies, the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. And Father, we're at that place where we get it, we see it. Yes, of course that's come. And now please enable us to see that there is more yet the culmination of all things in Christ's return to unite all things in him. We thank you that we see glimpses of that even now. We are united together, many of us from various and sundry backgrounds. We'd never be friends if it weren't for Christ. And yet here we are together. And throughout the course of the world and throughout the course of history, Diverse people united in Christ. And we're united with you as a husband and wife. We're united. The mystery is we're united with you, Lord Jesus. And we pray you enable us to proclaim this mystery so others would know it too and would hear it and resonate and by your spirit come to life. So now I pray, God, that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we would know the work of Christ and we would be confident that a day will come when. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
I remind you this table is not the table of Grace Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight, without hope, except in his sovereign mercy, and to receive and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners, and to desire now to live, giving praise for what he has done for us in Christ, and even living in anticipation of what is yet to come. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. I take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup and eat it. And as you do, remind yourself that because Christ has come, he's coming again. And the day will come when? Please come.